Oh, well, good evening, everybody. You guys been enjoying these videos? We showed the one on the Shema last week and this one from the Bible Project. So um, we're going to highlight um, a video from the Bible Project every week through the rest of the summer as we go through these uh, book overviews. It's a tremendous resource, very solid material, really interactive, really fun. Um, so just a really great tool that we want to be able to bless you all with. Tonight, I am excited that we get to continue our series of more than just a book. Um, we did our first six weeks doing basic kind of big Bible study methods uh, with you all. And now, beginning last week uh, through the rest of August, we're going to be going through different sections of the Bible that we talked about and looking at a book in each of these sections and really applying the lessons that we learned in the first six weeks as we study the books. So last week we did Deuteronomy, which was a lot of fun to do, and tonight we're going to do, a, and, that was, and that was out of the Torah, the section of the law, and tonight we're going to look um, at the book of Jonah as a representation of the prophets. Jonah is an awesome, awesome awesome book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I know I shouldn't have favorites in God's Word, but I do, and I love Jonah. So um, let's do a little bit of review, because before we jump in, we want to give everybody good context with everything. And actually, before we do that, let's pray. Um, so we really ask the Lord, uh, one, to guide my words and to soften all of our hearts to hear him tonight, okay? Father God, I just do thank you, uh, that, you that we have this place to gather as your people, that we have your Word uh, to open and to study and to submit ourselves under that we may go and be disciples, that we would be effective disciples for you in this world, that we would be equipped to live the life that you have designed for us. So, Father, as we jump into tonight, as we look at the book of Jonah, Father, I pray that your Spirit speaks to all of us, um, that the words that come out of my mouth would be the words that you want everyone to hear, uh, and that we would all leave here um, more in love with you, living more effectively for you, uh, and just more thankful for your grace um, in our lives, and ready and willing and excited to share that message of grace and salvation in Jesus uh, to this world that's in desperate need of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's review the prophets really quickly. When we spoke about the prophets a number of weeks ago, basically, this is the prophets. The prophets are people. They were sent by God to a specific people with a specific message to call these people to repentance. Okay, that was typically the message of the prophets. And what they also did is outline the consequences to the people if they didn't repent. For the Israelites, the consequence most often told to them would, was that they were going to be ruled by foreign nations and they would lose their land, their promised land that God had promised them, okay? This kind of is why we wanted to show the covenants video tonight because you understand there are promises made by God, there's commitments um, promised by his people. When we fall short in our commitments, the covenant is broken, but praise the Lord, we have Jesus that renews and restores everything, okay? So that's generally where we were going with, pro with the prophets. Now, Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets. It's the fifth book of the 12 minor prophets. Now, the reason they're called minor prophets is only because the books are shorter than the other prophetical books, okay? Major, minor. So the major prophets, just to remind you, is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is thrown in there because Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, okay? Those are the major prophets, and then everyone else, beginning with Hosea through Malachi, represent the minor prophets. So let's get to Jonah. We also, we always want to talk about the context. We need to understand the time and place and circumstance that's going on so we can rightly understand God's word to us. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II, and this was around 760 B.C., 760 B.C. Do you guys remember from last week, if you were here, uh, about the time that Deuteronomy 
was written, anyone remember? No one? For, around, remember, I think we said like 1408 B.C. is what we're looking at. Okay? So we're 700 years now from, from, from last week. I want to read to you the first mention that we have of Jonah. He first comes on the scene. We first hear about him in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning, beginning at verse 23. It says this. In the, fifth, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. This is Jeroboam II, so his kingship was 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. As goes the leader, so goes the people. So we find out here that Jeroboam II wasn't a great guy. Wasn't a good guy at all. But then we see verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord. He expanded Israel's borders. He expanded the kingdom according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. So, Jeroboam II was an evil king, so morally they were nowhere, spiritually they were nowhere, but they did experience, he did experience some political success during this time. Okay? What this does, this does give us a glimpse of God's grace for his people. Okay, we need, to, we need to keep in mind God is a good and loving and gracious God, which we're going to talk about in Jonah. And the other part that's going on here is that the, the ruling empire at this time were the Assyrians. And one reason that Jeroboam II was able to expand the borders is because the Assyrians were busy in a different part of their kingdom at this point, doing other things, waging other wars, which allowed Jeroboam II to do some some of his own uh, expansion himself. So that's, that's some of the context we're dealing with with Jonah. The other big context we need to understand is about the city of Nineveh, where God told Jonah to go. Let's talk about Nineveh. Nineveh is described over and over again in Jonah as a great city. As a great city. It was a great city as its time, meaning it was great in both size and importance. Size and importance. At this point in history, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is the big empire ruling everybody at this time. Okay? Nineveh was about 2,000 acres big. It had a population of at least... 120,000 people, about the same size as Springfield, okay? And it is located 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem. How far away was it? 500 miles. Keep that number in mind. Uh, Nineveh was, uh, was famous for hanging gardens, had water dams, parks, it had a 50-mile aqueduct that brought water to the city. It had a large double wall surrounding the city that is said that two chariots could have ridden side by side around the city. So this was a major deal. This is a big city back in this time. Nineveh was actually originally, the first we ever read about Nineveh is in Genesis chapter 10. Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. And I always snicker when I say that name. It was founded by Nimrod, but funny name to us, okay? But um, Nimrod was a guy you wouldn't want to mess with. The Bible describes Nimrod as the first mighty man on earth. The kind of, he's like the, the father of all great warriors and hunters. And he founded a lot of cities back then. He was a descendant of Noah's son, Ham. And, uh, and Nimrod founded the city of Nineveh. And we read about that in Genesis 10. Nineveh, um, it has maintained a strong connection 
with Jonah uh, to this day. Um, and, and Nineveh is actually is, is located in Iraq, um, just to give you some geography. There is an old Muslim mosque and cemetery on the site of ancient Nineveh that reads Nebi Yunus. And that means the tomb of Jonah. Okay? So, um, just some interesting things. Nineveh had a history and a future of being exceedingly evil. That was its reputation, of being exceedingly evil. The entire book of Nahum, another one of the minor prophets, um, it actually is written a hundred years later than Jonah, but the entire book of Nahum is a prophecy against Nineveh. Okay? Um, so we see Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. When God calls Jonah, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So that is its history of evil, and we know its future evil in Nahum chapter 3, the very last sec part of the very last verse in 19, says about Nineveh, For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So Nineveh is a bad, bad place. And that is where God sends his prophets. So that's some context to give you all about who we're talking about and where he went. Now, remember, we also want to understand where we are in the grand narrative. If you remember the grand narrative, say it with me. We have creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So where is Jonah taking place in the grand narrative? We're still in the fall. We're still in the fall. And what we're seeing more and more clearly as we're moving through history and we're getting closer to the cross, we're hearing more and more, reading more and more about the hope of redemption. And you're going to see that very, very clearly and very strongly in this book, which is beautiful. The literary style of Jonah is a prophetical narrative. It's a prophetical narrative, and it, and it has a chapter, and it, chapter 2 um, is poetry. Jonah prays this prayer that is, that is poetic in its form. Some will argue that Jonah is an allegory, or that Jonah is a parable. But what we will see tonight and discover that Jonah is a very, very real story. Okay? What is absolutely unique about Jonah is that the book of Jonah isn't about the prophet's message. The book of Jonah is actually about the prophet. It sets it apart from all the other prophetical writings, the other prophetical books. It's not so much about what Jonah said. We're going to find out. He said just a few words regarding his message that God wanted him to say. But this is really a book about the prophet itself, which makes it very applicable for us. The last thing I want to talk about before we really jump into the themes that we find is the structure. Jonah is a beautiful piece of, liter of literature. It, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to read. And it's set up in, in, in a parallel, okay? So let me, let me kind of draw for you how this parallel works. So we have this first scene going on in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which is his first call. When God first calls him to go to Nineveh. And we all know what happened. Did, God, did Jonah go? No, he didn't go right away. He didn't go right away. Um, the next scene we find here is Jonah uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, and this is the, the scene with the sailors on the boats. And really, um, a big highlight here is their repentance. The repentance of the sailors is the next scene. The third scene that we find is the prayer of Jonah, um, which starts in uh, the, you know, the scene where he's in the belly of the fish, um, the end of chapter 1, going through the, all of chapter 2. And this is Jonah's prayer. And it's his prayer of repentance, kind of. <laughs> We're going to talk about that, okay? It's his prayer of repentance, kind of. But now this is where the parallelism comes in. 
So we get to now the next scene, which is in Jonah 3, the first three verses, and this is his second call. The great fish spits him up, vomits him up, throws him up, and God calls him again to go to Nineveh. Does Jonah go this time? Yes, he does. He does go this time. And then we get to the next scene, which is in Jonah 3, 3 through 10. And this is where he is in Nineveh. And we see here the Ninevites repent. So you see the, the parallelism here between his first call and second call. You see a parallel, parallelism here between the sailors' repentance and the Ninevites' repentance. And then we see another parallelism in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, which is another prayer of Jonah. So you call, repentance, prayer. Call, repentance, prayer. So there's parallels going on. There's a little bit different things going on in here because, you know, first call he didn't go. Second call he did go. Sailors repent. Ninevites repent. Jonah has a kind of repentant prayer here. Jonah has an angry prayer here. And then we get to the great final scene, which is down here in Jonah 4. This is an interesting angle to write on. And we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. And the big lesson here is God's compassion, which is really the whole point of everything. So I wanted to draw this so you can kind of see the structure of the book and see how the Lord put this book together for us to learn from, okay? So we've under, we, we know where we're at with our context. We know where we are at with our literary style. We know where we are at with our structure. And now as we've done our good homework as good Bible study students, we are now ready to go into the themes and understanding the, really the message of Jonah and what God wants us, wants us to know about him and what he wants us to know about us and most of all, what God wants us to know about God. Okay? You ready to jump in? Awesome. Okay. The first theme that we're going to look at tonight that we see throughout Jonah is the theme of miracles. Theme of miracles. Miracles, here's kind of a very brief definition. God supernaturally overriding natural laws for his glory. Everybody say, for his glory. For his glory, yes. This is a big theme in Jonah in particular, and also all throughout Scripture, right? So this is a huge thing in, in Jonah. Miracles are one way that God testifies about himself. One way he testifies about himself, showing that he is the one true God. When you look at the miracles of the Bible, I'll guarantee you most every situation going on is God declaring he is the one true God. You can look at the plagues, and, and you can look at how every plague that God sent from a historical context, when you understand Egyptian culture, God was showing how he is greater than all these other gods that they had that they worshipped. When you look at the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that was the whole challenge, right? Elijah's like, hey, you build your altar, I'll build my altar, we'll cry out to our gods, we'll see who the one true God is, Right? And our God won. Miracles also are a point of argument and challenge of the Bible's reliability. How many of you have ever heard someone challenge the Bible, challenge Christianity in general, saying, oh, because miracles really can't happen? You've heard that argument, right? You've read it, you've talked to someone. That's a really common thing. It's a, it's a really, it's a result of the culture that we live in, this modern Western culture, living in the shadow of the Enlightenment, living in a scientific culture, okay? Um, but I'll tell you what, it's only been the last 
century or, century or so, century and a half, where this has really become an issue. There's, I mean, most throughout the world, people don't have an issue with the supernatural. They don't have an issue with miracles. It's a very Western culture thing. Shows our arrogance in a lot of ways. But let's look at these miracles. So we see in Jonah, we specifically see with Jonah, God's sovereign control over nature. That's a big way that he's showing himself through miracles. We see this with the storm. Jonah 1.4 says, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. When Jonah ran, he got in the boats. Big storm came, and it says God sent the storm, showing his control over nature in that way. We see it with the great fish. In Jonah 1.17, it says the Lord appointed a great fish. What kind of fish was it? I don't know, but it's a whale of a tail, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> we see it with the plants. Jonah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant when Jonah was out and the plant grew to give him, to give him shade. And then following verse, the worm. Jonah chapter 4, verse 7, God appointed a worm which ate the plant and took away Jonah's shade. So we see all throughout Jonah these miracles that God is doing, showing he is the one true God, showing that he is sovereign over nature. Now, whenever we read something in the Old Testament, we always want to see how it is affirmed, how it's modified, how it's qualified in the New Testament, right? Good Bible study students do that. That's what we're learning to do. We see Jesus doing this, don't we? We see Jesus exercising sovereign control over creation. The New Testament really affirms this. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, Jesus calms a storm. He's in the boat with the disciples. He's sleeping. The disciples are freaking out for their lives. Jesus stands up. Hush, be still. And the storm stops. We see in Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus curses the fig tree, and it withers right away. We see in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and thir through 34, is one of the sections where it describes Jesus healing the sick, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of infirmities, all kinds of demon possession, all kinds of things. Jesus heals it all. He's showing his sovereign control over nature for the glory of the one true God. That's the purpose of miracles. So here's my question to you, and I want to hear some feedback. What is the greatest miracle? The resurrection. Let's say it loud. What's the greatest miracle? The resurrection. And here's why... We know the resurrection is the greatest miracle. And here is where Jonah shows up in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. I'm actually going to start at verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. That's a Can we just back up for a second right there? Do you remember how exceedingly evil the Bible said the Ninevites were? Like for hundreds of years exceedingly evil? And Jesus just now said that the men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this current generation that Jesus is walking around with? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah. Jonah is a preview of Jesus, of the message of the cross, of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest miracle that God has ever done. When you read in the, in the New Testament, when 
Peter preaches, when Paul writes, they talk about how God raised Jesus from the dead. It's a miracle that God the Father pulled off. And here's what I want to say about the resurrection, and this needs to be probably a whole nother series, class, or something. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is verifiable. It's verifiable. There is no, and here's a little brief on it, okay? There is no other way to explain the explosive growth of Christianity in the midst of tremendous persecution and in the midst of the completely cross-cultural message that the early church had. There's no other way to explain it unless that resurrection actually happened. Once we establish that the resurrection is a reality, we can trace back now about 2,000 years, and we can show that that happened once we establish that the greatest miracle of all time happened, we can easily say, well, man, if that can happen, well, of course God can appoint a fish to swallow a man. Of course there could be a flood that covers the earth. Of course, of course, of course these things could happen. Because we can prove, we can show the greatest miracle did happen. And we are living proof of that tonight. Amen? And we see in Matthew 12, Jesus confirms the reality of the person and story of Jonah. It's not a parable. It's not an allegory. He was a real guy, and this story really happened to him. Jesus tells us that. So we all see that as under the first big theme that we see throughout Jonah is the theme of miracles. Here's the second big theme is this. The second theme is pride. Pride is the second theme. Remember, this is an account of the prophets more than the prophecy. In Jonah, we learn about his sin and his shortcomings, and in doing so, the person of Jonah becomes a mirror that we look in and see ourselves. See, pride is the underlying root of all sin. It's the underlying root of all sin. And pride is best seen as the sins of self. What do I mean by that? Think about these just as a start. Self-righteousness. Self-sufficiency. Self-pity. Self-protection. It's basically fully relying on yourself instead of trusting God. So let's kind of look at how these show up in Jonah. Let's look at Jonah's self-sufficiency. He was going to do what he wanted, and he was going to ignore God's command. Jonah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Arise, God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Whenever you go down anywhere in the Bible, that's not a good thing. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's do a little geography. Let's talk about Nineveh. Let's talk about Tarshish. Let's talk about Israel. Okay? So I'm going to do a very, 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 very rough drawing of the Mediterranean Sea. So we have the, the, the southern shore, shall we say, of the Mediterranean Sea, which is down here. This is like Africa and stuff. We come up here to the Middle East. Um, you know, Israel is around here, okay? Then we come up this way, and you have all the Greek islands and their little things. Come over here. Here's Italy. And then you come over here to the rest of Europe and up over here, okay? Um, very, 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 very rough drawing of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, so you have Jerusalem here. How far away do you remember was Nineveh from Jerusalem? Nice job. So northeast, so over here 
is Nineveh, 500 miles to the northeast. Tarshish, at this point of history, was the edge of the known world back then. Who knows what country we're talking about today regarding Tarshish? Anybody know? Spain. That's this guy way over here. Okay? And um, probably down uh, where uh, Tarshish was probably way down here on the southern border of it. Okay, so here is Tarshish. You know how far this is? Is it 500 miles? Is it farther? You know how much farther? 2,500 miles away. Jonah, I mean, when he was running, he was running. He was five times further. My boss called me and said, hey, can you come to Chicago today for a meeting? I I didn't want to go. I wanted to do Jonah. I mean, you know, it'd be like me going going to Dallas, you know, instead of Chicago today. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Some commentators even say at this point that the phrase pay the fare, some say that could even mean he bought the boat. I mean, he's going all in. Going all in. And it's funny because he's saying he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, which is impossible. But what it's showing is Jonah's trying to show sufficiency in himself here. I don't want to do what you, I'm going to do what I, I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to pay my fare, maybe bought the boat, and I'm going to go. Okay? Jonah's self sufficiency. We also see Jonah's self righteousness. One dialect of self-righteousness is hypocrisy. That's a dialect of self-righteousness. Okay? Saying one thing, but actions proving another. Doing something that's wrong, but still proclaiming a faith in God and thinking your nose is clean through it all. Right? Let's look at verse 9. So the storm came The sailors are freaking out. They're casting lots to find out whose issue it was. The lot fell on Jonah. They start peppering him with questions. And here's, where are you from? Who's your country? What people are you? I mean, they're just peppering him with questions. Jonah says this in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. What did this guy just do? He's proclaiming his faith. He's proclaiming he's a follower of the one true God in the middle of him running away five times farther than where God told him to go. He's not following anybody. Jonah's self-righteousness. Jonah's self-protection. Self-protection for him and his people. We see in this case, you know, we wanted to show the covenant video on purpose tonight because, you know, the Jews, the covenant was made with them. Right? Um, And they didn't see, that the video highlighted, that the covenant, that the promises of God were designed to ultimately end to be a blessing for the whole world, right? We see the early church struggling with this, don't we? Salvation came to the Jews first. They didn't go out into the all the world. It took them like nine chapters in the book of Acts to finally start going somewhere. In a sense, this is a form of self-protection. Hey, these covenant promises, this message of salvation, this message of faith in the one true God, this is for me and my people. Not for these evil, Israel, these evil Ninevites. We see a very overdeveloped sense of nationalism in Noah. Overdeveloped sense of nationalism. How do we get, look, chapter 4. Chapter 4. Displeased Jonah when he saw the repentance of the Ninevites. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? He emphasizes, this is what my, where I, you remember your people, the Israel, remember us? And you want me to go to these pagans? 
we need to understand, we, we don't, there is no one people, one country that owns the message of salvation. You know, Christianity isn't an American thing, everybody. It's a people thing. It's a world thing. You know, and I, I, when we were, I remember, I think it was Dan that preached the message. At some point, we were going through and st- talking about the Great Commission. We're the ends of the earth. Where that message was given, we're the ends. I mean, we're still continuing it, but we're the ends of the earth of go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost of parts of the world. That's us. So let's have a proper perspective of that. Let's keep going with this pride thing because we can talk about pride all night. Jonah's self-righteousness part two. Okay, he goes outside of the city of Nineveh to watch what God's going to do and hope for judgment to still fall on them. Who's the exceedingly evil one? My goodness. We, if we continue in chapter 4, it says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Waiting for its, and hoping for its destruction. And then last, we do see Jonah's self-pity. Instead of celebrating Nineveh, receiving his message, he goes and sits outside the city, which we just read. He makes himself a shelter. God grows a plant, which makes Jonah happy. Shield him from the scorching sun. But then God took away the plant, which made Jonah really mad. And we read in verse 9 of chapter 4, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, That guy said this to God. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Wallowing in his own self-pity. He is not exercising one even little iota of meekness. We're going to talk about meekness on Sunday and how controlling anger is a sign of exercising meekness. He's not doing that at all. So we see pride all throughout this in the character of Jonah. That's our second theme. Our third theme, repentance. Praise the Lord for repentance. Jonah Jonah rightly describes God in verse 2 of chapter 4. He said, O Lord, (coughs) he prayed, O Lord, this is not what he said when I was getting my country. That is why we finally find out why Jonah ran initially. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why he ran. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those are all 100% true statements about God. Jonah knew that's who God was. That's a reason, actually, that Jonah ran because he didn't want the evil Ninevites to be able to experience that. He's in a bad place. But Jonah does show us that the, the God is merciful and wants people to repent. God's desire is for all people to repent, to turn from their wicked ways toward him, to change their mind on their view of themselves for being prideful and self-centered, and to live humble, God-centered lives. And here's repentance all through Jonah. We see the sailors repenting, Right? Jonah 1, verses 14 through 16. They repented. These polytheistic sailors came face to face with God. Did they come face to face with God in the storm? Is that where they came face to face to God with? Let's see what the Bible says. Let's look at verse 16 in chapter 1. We'll pick it up verse 15. So they picked up Jonah... And hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. The sea ceased from raging. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Do you see, these sailors didn't repent because of the storm. They repented because of the calm. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the disciples, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus calms the storm. And when he calmed the storm, the disciples are like, 
Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? It was the calm that caused the sailors to repent. We see in Jonah chapter 2 another scene of repentance where Jonah repented, sort of. He repented, sort of. In the belly of the fish, Jonah sees that God spared his life and was overcome by God's provision for him. He did, Jonah does recognize that. He was drowning, the fish came, Jonah's still alive. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, in very many ways, if we, when you look at this Bible, it is very many ways the central verse of the Bible. Because the end of, chapter, of verse 9 in chapter 2, Jonah says the last line of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. Everyone say that together. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So that's true. But what we do see in the next couple chapters that Jonah's repentance didn't go very deep. It didn't go very deep. He did obey. He did go to Nineveh. But he still hoped that God would wipe them out. Not exactly submitting his heart to the Lord's. That's why it was a kind of sort of repentance. We see the Ninevites repenting in Jonah chapter 3, um, verses 5 and 6. We've kind of looked at these verses. Um, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God and called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the grace of them to the least of them. Verse 6, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he began to issue proclamations throughout Nineveh. I'll tell you what, what's amazing about this is that they repented with the message that Jonah gave. Jonah didn't give a great message. Eight words, Jonah says in English. In Hebrew, it's five words. He says, Jonah says this, he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. He just walked through the city, 120,000 people, yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not one mention of God, not one mention of repent, not one message of believe. Nothing. And these people still repented. Because I think they knew where Jonah was from. They, they knew about the Israelite God, right? But we see them repent, and we see God respond to that in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Which leads us to our last theme of Jonah as we wrap up. The last theme of Jonah, the greatest theme of Jonah, the theme that all other themes point to, is the compassion of God. The compassion of God. This is the big lesson. While we, like Jonah, spend our time criticizing and judging others, just stop, let's just stop there for a moment. And I want you to just be honest with yourself right now. What is the internal dialogue that goes on in your head when you come face to face with a sinner? Maybe it's um, someone struggling with an addiction. You know, maybe a sexual issue, whatever. What's the internal dialogue going on? Is there a part of you, is there a moment of you that casts judgment and criticism toward them? You may not say it out loud, but it is in there. You see, while we, like Jonah, spend our time criticizing and judging others, God is looking for people to bring a hopeful message to those far from him. Jonah missed that God's grace is big enough for the world. It was never meant to be just for the Jews alone, but for all who are far from him and don't know right from wrong. God says in verse 11 of chapter 4, in his great lesson to Jonah, and his great lesson to us, he says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle. That's kind of funny, but, here, but understand at this point in history, oftentimes your wealth 
was measured by your property, and most of your property was livestock. So he's, this emphasizes the greatness of the city. So there, it's an important city. It's a great city. It's an influential city. And it's a city full of people. God's compassion is the lesson. God's compassion is the greatest theme. Let's not forget that God is a God of second chances. Jonah was called, and he ran. God caught him. Jonah was called again, and he obeyed, although reluctantly. And I'm going to say, I think Jonah was called one last time. I think he was called one last time. Because when you read this, did you, do you notice how abruptly the book ends? I mean, we just read the very last verse. God poses this question, should I not pity Nineveh? And that's it. We don't, we, we don't, we don't hear an answer. We don't, we don't know what happens. It, it appears that God's question stopped Jonah dead in his tracks. So here's my question to you. Do you think, did Jonah ever truly repent? Did he ever truly repent? How many people, raise your hand. Yes, I think Jonah truly repented at some point. Raise your hand. No, I don't think Jonah ever really truly repent. People, I don't know. I'm waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> it's an opinion. But I think it's a good educated opinion. I'm going to say yes, he did. I think he did. And here's why. Because we have the story. Who wrote Jonah? Jonah wrote Jonah. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Who else would be so honest about their awfulness? Who else would be so honest about this crazy journey that he went on. A ship and a storm and a fish and throwing up <laughs> in this evil city. Unless, who would be so, unless that final question that God posed him cut straight to his heart. And Jonah did repent of his sin of pride. He repented of his self-righteousness. He repented of his self-sufficiency. He repented of his self-protection. He repented of his self-pity. I don't know any other reason why we would have the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, unless through all of this, Jonah really did repent. And he wanted us to know his story because we are his story. Aren't we? Because of who God is, he is compassionate. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. Because he is these things, we are. Because as Christians, we are clothed with Christ. Colossians tells us that Christ, who is our life, this is who we are. Because of who God is, we are and then we do. This is the journey that Jonah learned when he made that great proclamation, the beginning of chapter 4 to God. God, I know you're this type of God. I know you're compassionate and merciful. I know you're gracious. I know you're slow to anger. I know you will relent when people repent. Jonah, in some way deep in his heart, he began to preach to himself in there. And God helped him along the way with the plant, helped him along the way with the worm, and gave him this great lesson of compassion at the end of the book. So my question to you is this. Does God's final question to Jonah stop you dead in your tracks? Does your heart reflect the compassion in God's heart? 
That's the message of Jonah to us. When you come face to face with that sinner, are you reminded of your sin and God's grace to you? And you have an opportunity to repent right there and show love and compassion to that person. What does repentance really look like in your life? Is it surface actions? Reluctant obedience? Or is it attitude and position of your heart? That is the message of Jonah to us. Amen? Next week, we will be looking at Proverbs. Talking about wisdom. Pastor Mark will be sharing the message. Really looking forward to that. Let's take a moment and pray. And then we'll be dismissed for the evening. Father God, we are overwhelmed by your compassion. Lord, we recognize apart from you, we are exceedingly evil, like the Ninevites, like Jonah. And yet, God, you pursue and you love and you call and you relent from judgment when we repent and respond to your kindness and grace. And so, God, I thank you for Jesus, for, for sh- modeling that so much yourself. Lord, for, God, for you upholding the covenant in, in spite of our failure to. You are such a great God. God, I thank you for this honest message of Jonah that allows us to watch a journey to view our own journey and always come back to your compassion and grace. You are so good. Help us not to leave here now with truly humble hearts, eager to serve, eager to share your message of salvation, the only hope in Jesus, and that we do that in a very humble way. We praise you, and we pray this in your son's great name. Amen. All right, thank you, everybody. God bless you. See you next week.